Welcome to Behind the Standards with United Rentals. This is a podcast where we discuss construction safety, typically trench excavation and confined space safety, but also other topics that deal with general job site safety as well. I am Rick Plosinski, Customer Training Specialist, and with me are Dee Hernandez and Eric Partenheimer. Dee, please give the listeners a brief introduction. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Diana Hernandez, and uh, they call me Dee. I am the Gulf District Customer Training Specialist. I have 25 years of the experience in the industry, and um, I am OSHA certified. And also, I am certified by the state to give CEU classes. So thank you and welcome, everyone. Thank you, Dee and Eric. Yeah. Hi, my name is Eric Partenheimer, Customer Training Specialist assigned to the NorCal District. I have uh, been with the company about 14 years now, coming up on 15. My background prior was confined space, confined space rescue-related items, uh, trench rescue, things like that. So uh, real happy to be here and looking forward to our subject today. Thank you. So our conversation was created to be informative and educational so you can hopefully avoid injuries and fatalities while on the job site and also be just a little bit entertaining. And today in the first of a two-part episode, we will be discussing the confined spaces in construction standard and clarifying some of the key terms and definitions that can be found in that standard. Indeed, there are a lot of terms associated with confined spaces, but the first one we probably need to address is the actual definition and what properties are present in all confined spaces. So how do you break down the definition of confined space in your training classes? I break it down this way, Rick. Um, we know that kind of a confined space is considered one that is large enough uh, and so configured that uh, an employee can bodily enter. Two, uh, it has limited or restricted means of entry and exit and is not designed for continuous employee occupancy. And I always tell them to remember SAD, size, access, and duration. It's the easiest way for them to identify a confined space. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if we break down that definition just a little bit further, too, as far as large enough to bodily enter, a article that I was reading not too long ago basically broke that down and said, look, if it is large enough and so configured that you can get your entire body into that space and be able to put a cover over the opening of that space and you are completely enveloped in that space, then by definition, it is large enough to bodily enter. So it doesn't matter how deep it is. It doesn't matter how wide it is. If you can get your entire body into it and pull a cover in front of it, technically it is large enough to bodily enter. And to take that just that step further, you know, when we talk about entering and, and most people have had this course before, whether it be in construction or the general industry, it's always been known that if you break that imaginary plane, you have considered to enter that space. This new standard now with the in-construction standard actually takes it a step further and says whether or not the act was intentional or we were even going to work in that space. So the fact that my hand's resting on the rim and it happened to slip in, I would have, be considered to have entered that space. And as long as your point, what you had just said, follows right along with that, if that, those, that criteria is met, I have considered to enter that space. So compliance officers watching a job, guy sticks a flashlight down in, as long as just the flashlight's at that rim, he's fine. Once that hand dips down below the rim, they have now entered the space. You know, and, and I'm sure they've heard every excuse in the book as to, oh, well, we weren't going to work in here. It was an accident. And that's why this has been added on to that. 
That is correct. And I always let them know. I said, even you put your little pinky in there, you know it's going to be breaking plain. The tips of your fingers, the mm-hmm. you know, stick your stick your head into a tank to see what's going on. If you have your mm-hmm. legs dangling in a manhole, by definition, you have entered into that space. You have broken the plane. And D, you've probably seen this quite a bit in the in the industries that that you've worked in. When you're talking about limited or restricted means of entry and exit, that does not just mean one way in and one way out. That is correct. Uh, and if there's anything that can impede you from getting from point A to point B, if you have to walk a distance, if you're crawling into even a horizontal area, uh, you've got your HVACs, you've got your crawl spaces that you get into where it's impeding you to get out immediately. I, I hear this a lot whenever I ask, you know, what somebody's definition is of, of, you know, limited or restricted to get in and out. And I hear people a lot say one way in. That's one way in. And it's partially true and probably more true than not. But if I had a doorway that I could just walk right out of, I'm 10, 15 feet away and literally just walk right out. That's not really limited or restricted. Now, that same doorway and I'm 15 feet away and I have to, you know, go around things, step over pipe, use my hands, maybe take one or two steps uh, up a small little uh, ladder going out of this space that now would be considered limited or restricted. So uh, the the fact that it's just one way in, one way out isn't the 100% because there are some other things that'll that'll help define that. And think about that. If you need assistance to enter into and exit from that space, in other words, you cannot access it on your own without assistance from somebody else, the attendant, for example, well, then by definition, it is limited or restricted means of entry and exit. And then the third one, again, breaking the definition down a little bit further and talking about not designed for continuous occupancy. And and going on with that also, safety person there had asked me if I would go out and look at a couple of spaces that the previous administrators had deemed as permit required. And we went out there and, and he sniffed around the lid. We opened the lids. Uh, he sniffed all the inside. Everything was fine. He reached in and he, and he flipped a switch. And I said, what is that for? And he said, oh, for the lights and the fans. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, we actually even have a heater in here. I said, you know, this is a, this is not this is designed for continuous occupancy. Thereby, this really n- would not even be a confined space. So the fact you're calling it permit, we might want to reevaluate that. So they were going to leave it as a non-permit, still do all their pre-entry in that. But that's a good example. Most of us don't have that luxury where we're going to have that. Yeah, thinking about just, for example, the example of a crawl space and the example of a basement, right? Large enough to bodily enter, both of them absolutely. Limited or restricted means of entry and exit, both of them do. The difference is, is it whether it's designed for continuous occupancy. Basements, for the most part, are designed for continuous occupancy. They have lights, they have HVAC systems and other things. Crawl spaces do not. And therein lies the difference between what is designed for continuous occupancy and what is not. So once you have established that you actually have a confined space, well, then your first step in determining what type of confined space is is probably the, is the next thing that we're going to discuss. So, D, in talking about the differences in the different categories of confined spaces, we really have three different categories as well. We have permit required, we have non-permit required, and we have alternate entry confined spaces. How do you break these down for students? Okay, the way I break it down for them, 
um, is um, I, if you've got your non-permit confined space, your permit required confined space, and your alternative entry. And when we speak about non-permit, that's when there is no hazard, no danger, or you've got a way of controlling the hazard in the space, uh, then that would be your non-permit. But I also remind them that despite the fact that it may be new construction, and this is where there's a mishap here when it comes to your non-permit required confined spaces. Uh, there are some folks, some workers out there that will think just because it's a new construction, there are no hazards, especially their manholes and, you know, new pipes and so forth. And I tell them, look, you know, concrete uh, cement takes time for it to cure. It may take up to 28 days, even longer, depending on the humidity in your area. While it's doing that, it's taking up the oxygen. So n it's not necessarily that you, when you see something new, that it's a not, don't assume it's a non-permit confined space because there are other hazards that could be occurring in the, in those areas. On that note, same, same type of deal where you've got a brand new manhole, people are just going to default. Well, it's brand new. There's nothing in there. Anything that is a confined space needs to be atmospherically checked. And that's going to be that gas monitor. So with all three of these that we're going to be going over, they all, the part of our pre-entry process is, is to make sure there's no physical hazards and no atmospheric ones. And the only way we can do that's with a monitor. So regardless of what we think may or may not be in there, the space still needs to be atmospherically checked. And then at that point, no physical, no atmospheric issues. Now they can go back and say, this is a non-permit entry. So when we're really talking about a lot of these, if you're talking about, for example, we have non-permit required confined space, that would be considered the least hazardous, right? Because there are no actual or potential hazards associated with the space, including there is no actual or potential hazardous atmosphere. So if you have those situations, then it, you could technically consider your space as a non-permit required confined space. It would be the least hazardous of these three. The next one would be alternate entry because alternate entry, you still don't have any of those physical hazards or you've been able to eliminate or isolate all of those hazards, but you still have one additional hazard. What hazard is that, Eric? That's going to be your atmospheric hazard. So we've checked it with our gas monitor. We put it in there. We've gotten readings. Um, it, it's hit my alarm points. Now I can take my forced air, my ventilator, drop a, a piece of duct in there, flush it out, purge it out, recheck it. If it's not quite clean yet, let it continue to be clean. And once it finally gets to a spot where it's clean and safe for entry, which we're going to talk about here in a few minutes, once it reaches that threshold, now we can do an entry based on continuous forced air ventilation alone and continuous monitoring. We can go in under what's termed as alternate entry. Some people who have been around for a while have heard it referred to as C5. That's how where it fell in the old standard. So we still see forms that see C5 on it, but that's going to be your alternate entry. And now you have your, your C3, your alternative entry in 1926 subpart AA. So, yeah, like uh, Eric mentioned, you know, that's the only thing that can be left is that hazardous atmosphere. This is all the responsibility of that competent person, right? They're going to have to identify the spaces and start communicating that information to the employees and letting them know uh, what they have out there. And that competent person not only has to identify those areas and identify the areas and communicate that to, uh, you know, the employees, but he also has to know how to utilize a monitor, you know, and this is where I tell my folks, if you don't know how to utilize that monitor, 
and you don't know what the reading, the levels are, then, you know, you're not truly a competent person in confined spaces. Yeah, I had a situation too, when we're talking about alternative entry, uh, I had a situation where I, I showed up and a customer had gotten popped by OSHA and uh, to do a class. And we were we were talking a little bit about what their situation was and the, the host contractor, and we'll talk about the difference between the host controlling and entry employers here in just a moment too. Uh, host had deemed their space, just like Eric, you had talked about as a permit required confined space. But they didn't disseminate that information to the controlling contractor. And so when the controlling contractor had employees of their own that was working inside that space, they said, oh, no, it's it's alternate entry. Well, two of the questions that came up was, one, the host says that it's permit required, so you've got to treat it as permit required. But number two, if you are deeming it as alternate entry, where is your forced air ventilation system? Because it does require you to have a continuous forced air ventilation system set up. And it also requires continuous monitoring of that space. So when we're talking about all of these things, you have to have certain components in order to classify it as alternative entry. And part of that, and I mentioned it before, and I'll just go ahead and go over this now, but safe for entry. And that's how it reads on there is that it needs to be made safe for entry. And in fact, uh, there was a letter of interpretation that came out from OSHA and somebody had asked, what do they consider as safe for entry? And they're willing to accept as the minimal amount for safe for entry, 50% of the flammable or toxic substances that would constitute a hazardous atmosphere. So when now I'm looking at my readings as far as carbon monoxide goes or hydrogen sulfide, I would be taking those in half. If the levels are in half, that's considered to be, or less, that's considered to be safe for entry. And I think that this is something that doesn't get discussed a lot, but it definitely needs to be brought to people's attention because it, to your point, Rick, if they're up, you know, and they're below the levels on their gas monitor and they think they're fine, they're actually not. They're still exceeding what OSHA would consider to be a safe for entry level. So you've got the non-permit required confined space as the least hazardous, alternate entry as the next least hazardous. I don't want to say the safest because <laughs> not all necessarily safe, right? Um, but then you have permit required confined spaces, which would be the most hazardous of the three. And Eric, maybe you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, I, well, just on those two, Rick, I, that uh, people need to know, and, and we have a lot of customers that say, well, we just call everything permit because it takes the guesswork out. With this new standard, I think that there's too many things now that are, are needed to be accomplished in the permit required that could get missed very easily more than somebody misnaming something. Uh, there's some pretty easy you know, pre-entry checklists that they can go down that are going to give them exactly what they've got going on. And one of the big ones is the rescue component having to pre-identify an entry rescue team on a permit required confined space, regardless of how you enter into the space. That component is not on non-permit or alternate entry. We can drop a ladder in, we just have to provide a safe way in and out, and we can go about our business. Where the permit required, that's a whole nother level that somebody, if they're not making calls to find out who is confined space rescue trained, that's something that could be a possible citation. The other point that I would like to make about non-permit required and alternate entry is that if you can satisfy the requirements for non-permit required confined space and alternative entry, 
you can basically circumnavigate around a lot of the confined spaces and construction standards, specifically the need for the permit required confined space program, the permitting process, the permit itself. You wouldn't have to technically follow the requirements for the attendant authorized entrance and entry supervisors. And again, as Eric pointed out, the rescue and emergency services component. Now, once you deem your space as a permit required confined space, you need to satisfy all of the requirements that are found in the 1926 subpart AA confined spaces and construction standard. Yeah, uh, that's a, exactly right. And that's why I think, you know, having a good pre-entry checklist that starts with the three things that D went over, size, access, duration, those are all checked off. Great. If one's a no, sign here, go to work. If they're all three yeses, then we start with our testing and sampling and work our way down that pre-entry list. And it's going to guide us into which one of it, which one of these that it is. Permit required. Is it is there or a potential to contain a hazardous atmosphere? Is there a potential or, or an engulfment hazard, a silo, inclining floors that come down, and then any other recognized serious safety or health hazard? If one or more of those four is true, it's now a true permit required. But we have the ability, like Dee alluded to earlier, we can downgrade. We can go and I can look if I can eliminate or isolate that physical hazard by inserting pipe plugs and having a flow through plug in there. And I've got I've got a, a space now that has been eliminated and isolated. The line is still live. There are no atmospheric issues. I can now downgrade that to a non-permit entry. But I think with that, it, people blanketing in it, I think they're going to, with this new standard, do themselves somewhat of a disservice. And you have to document, document, document. We cannot stress enough that OSHA is a show-me agency. In a lot of cases, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. And this standard specifically talks about different areas and key areas where you have to document the findings, document your readings, and make that information available to any entrant who might be actually going into that space. That is correct. And I emphasize that in my classes. If you didn't write it down, it never happened. You get an inspector stopping by there and, you know, they ask you for this information. If it's not written down in your permit, uh, let's say, for example, another scenario, you're somewhere out in the boonies and all of a sudden you're going to go into a confined space and write it down somewhere, document it. And I also tell them the best way to remember a permit required confined space is remember HAZE. Remember the acronym. I, I'm a stickler with, you know, acronyms. Uh, I don't know why. I think it's easier for some folks to remember. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if, if we can make it, you know, as trainers, we are always finding ways or trying to find ways to make things seem easier than what OSHA speak, because OSHA speak can be very, very difficult to follow. Uh, so if we can find a good method of making people kind of understand it and be able to retain that information in a much easier fashion, then we're definitely going to do it. So I'm all good with uh, with uh, acronyms. I'm, I'm all good for that. And Hayes, what, what Dee was alluding to a little bit earlier was has the it contains or has the potential to contain a hazardous atmosphere so that's h and a c is a configuration danger that could entrap or asphyxiate and e is entrapment potential or any other serious safety or health hazard so if you think about h a c e that will actually help you determine that hey look yep i have one of these four then by definition we have permit required confined space and as such we have to follow 
all of the requirements that are found in the subpart AA standard. And piggybacking on that and, and kind of talking about the different things that we need to be looked at. And, and like say on a pre-entry checklist, I'm looking at what are the acceptable entry conditions? What are What is it that needs to be in there? Um, and we look at our set points for our gas monitors, but also physical hazards. What's acceptable to go in there for that? But when you look at your, your monitor set points at 19.5 on the low end, 23.5 on the high end, anything in between that would be considered to be an acceptable entry condition. Something that's out of that range could be immediately dangerous to life or health. So we have to assure as that person who's going to be signing off that all the acceptable entry conditions have been met and we don't have anything that's prohibited. And what's interesting about that 19 and a half and 23 and a half percent. So what Eric is alluding to a little bit is that if you have any concentration of oxygen less than 19.5%, it is considered oxygen deficient, or in other words, there is a lack of oxygen per the OSHA standard. And anything greater than 23 and a half percent is considered oxygen enriched. Now, the normal level of oxygen is 20.9%. So that's basically the normal area. But just think about even though you might have an oxygen sensor telling you that you are within that 19 and a half and 23 and a half range. If that's all you have is an oxygen sensor telling you that, well, that's not telling you the entire story because something is taking the place of the oxygen that has been vacated from that space. And if it is some other type of toxic material, that could be a very serious situation for you. Yeah. And, and on that note, Rick, when I talk to students and that and, and other customers, and I, I always say, listen, if it's me, and this is my own personal thing, but it's about 197. I would that would kind of be my red flag. I would probably start pulling people out because if the other sensors are all fine, there may be something that's not being read that is pushing the oxygen out, or it could be a small space that the person in there is using up the oxygen. And if I didn't have a blower in there, maybe we need to get that blower in there. But it, it, I wouldn't wait till 19.5. I, I, I may reset mine at 19.7. On the other end, at 23.5, if you look at some of the manufacturers uh, for gas monitors, they actually say at about 21 and a half, you may start getting false readings with the LEL sensors. So I have always counseled my customers, hey, you might want to reset it at 21.5. If it creeps up to that, see what's going on. Do you have an O2 line that's in there? Could be a valve that's broken. Something is, is introducing more, and that's why it's starting to elevate. So, the, you know, there's there's numbers that were given, but we want to make it as safe as possible. And if we need to do that, that's what we need to do. And that's kind of where that bleeding over from safe for entry and acceptable entry conditions kind of plays into that definition as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's in the it's in the standard numerous times, making sure we have the acceptable entry conditions. And part of that acceptable entry conditions on an alternate entry is what's considered to be safe for entry. And that's where OSHA defines that as being half of your flammables and your toxins. And when we're talking about prohibited conditions, because the standard does require you to even list prohibited conditions on your permit, when we're talking about prohibited conditions, what does that kind of mean? Well, I mean, most people are going to look at the atmospheric thing, but we look at atmosphere-wise, you know, we know there's numbers that we can see, but then we start looking at possibly temperature extremes, other things that could go going on physically in that space that we don't want. That's something that could cause our people harm. So prohibited conditions could be things that could be energized. I have to use lockout tagout on that. I've got engulfment potentials. I need to use pipe plugs or other means valves with a lockout tagout system, things along those lines, things, anything that's going to cause harm 
for our entrant, that's what we have to eliminate. And then how do we go about that? D, you're in Southern Texas. Do you have to deal a lot with uh, rattlesnakes? Yes. Yes. A lot of insects, a lot of brown recluse and, uh, you know, all those things that uh, you have to be very careful in those areas. Rotens uh, and and not, not only insects, Rick, but they also encountered hazmat material in areas uh, you know, uh, they also caught a couple of guys up in a, a city nearby. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but in Houston, where they were throwing, you know, their drink, your their old uh, meth lab residues into areas like that, uh, into, you know, your sewer system and so forth. So um, you have to be very careful while you are working in confined spaces or going into confined spaces. So prohibited conditions aren't necessarily all just gas. It could be physical hazards. It could be even examples like biological hazards, those kinds of things. Think about hypodermic needles at the bottom of a sewer system, for example. That would be another one. If you're going to be stuck with something, that could be a prohibited condition as well. And I think all of this, if you think about it, it stems, what needs to be done is a pre-entry conversation, having a talk What's the worst thing that can be in there? What's the worst thing? How do we combat that? What do we do to make sure that 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 condition is not going to exist? So we really need to go through that. And that that typically, you know, it's going to fall on the group together, coming up with everything together. And that's where the host controlling and entry employers come into play, really, because if you think about there is a there's a hierarchy of responsibility on all confined space sites. And we're talking about the host employer, the controlling contractor, and the entry employer. And really, there is a responsibility of communication and coordination both before entry and after entry. And so when we're talking about the host employer, that is basically the contractor who owns or the employer, excuse me, who owns or manages the property where the work is taking place. And they are required to give specific information to the controlling contractor and the controlling contractor has to receive it. So in other words, if they didn't automatically get that information from the host, they have to go and ask for it. It basically takes a three-word phrase away from everybody's vocabulary. In other words, nobody in this process can say, I didn't know, because the standard does state that if you did not receive the information, you have to ask for it. And then all of that information needs to be disseminated to the entry employer. And piggybacking on that, so absolutely right, you know, every party has got a responsibility to either, you know, listen to and receive that information or ask for it. Now, if I came in as a general, as a controlling contractor, and Rick, you own the property, and I ask you, can you tell me about confined spaces in the area where we're going to be at? And you say, I don't know what you're talking about. It's now up to me to figure that out. And I'll go in and figure out what we've got going on in our area. So the information may not be there all the time, but it's still our responsibility to figure out what's going on. And then after entry, the entry employer and the controlling contractors, they have to have a meeting and they need to talk about not only the permit required confined space program that they actually followed. They also need to talk about hazards that they confronted. They also need to talk about hazards that they might have created while they were inside the space, because there might be another entry employer that's going to come in after them, and they need to be aware of potential hazards and dangers that they have created for the people coming in after. 
And and on that, I, I know in Dee's previous career, um, a, a lot of these entries were over and over and over and over again. So to your point, being able to go back and look at canceled permits and things along those lines. But, you know, with that entry employer, it could be multiple people coming in and different outfits that are coming in. Dee, how did you guys go about deciding whose written program was going to be utilized? Okay, that was something I wanted to touch also because we had the jobs where we were at and and, um, sometimes the employees were the ones that were affected or escorted out, right, because they were not following the proper confined space procedures. Now, to your question is, it is stated on the contracts, whose confined space program you're going to follow. And I tell my classes this, if you're a subcontractor and uh, you've been hired by the controlling contractor, then you've got to make it clear whose policies, whose confined space program you're going to follow. And I I bring that up because this is something and and talking with a lot of contractors, I, I personally bring it up in every class and tell them even before at the bid process, I would still want to know it. You know, if it's not in the contract, I would be asking that question because, you know, if my program meets the minimal requirements, but yours is way higher and you require some additional equipment, I show up day one, I'm already in the hole because I haven't budgeted to go out and purchase or rent that equipment on there. So it's something that should be discussed way prior to, but to Rick's point, part of that controlling contractor's responsibility is to coordinate that entry, but also find out and discuss whose written program is going to be utilized. And uh, it's very important that they uh, uh, mention it and have it in writing and discuss it because everyone is affected. And at the end of the day, it's all about uh, safety and knowing what needs to be done in those areas. You know, and when we're talking about entry, not only does the standard specify the host controlling and entry employers, but they also talk about the people that need to be responsible for that entry, specifically talking about the authorized entrant attendants and the entry supervisors. And each of them have specific duties as well, both before and after entry. This has been Behind the Standards with United Rentals. For more discussion on this topic, tune in to Part 2, available on December 16th, and join us for a confined space webinar on January 26th, hosted by Joe Wise and Bruce McGee. To register, go to www.trenchsafetyevents.com or follow the link located on the homepage of this episode and select webinar. On behalf of D. Eric and myself, thanks for listening in. Have a great day and stay safe.